Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, uh, tonight we're going to continue with this series on seven factors of awakening or enlightenment, whichever one you prefer. Um, and last week we talked about how they work together, the seven being mindfulness, investigation, energy, or effort, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Last week spoke specifically about how one leads to another. It can be a kind of uh, spiraling um, way to reflect on how they work together. One mindfulness leads to investigation, leads to etc., etc. And another way to hold the list is that they're balancing, it's a list of balance and mindfulness in the center. There's the three energizing factors and the three calming or stilling factors. Um, And in fact, last week I encouraged people to play around with balance in their life. Anybody do that? Did anybody anybody have a balanced week? No. Anybody uh, who uh, actively brought that into your consciousness as a practice? I'm curious. A few people. uh, Anything that you want to say or that you discovered? Don't feel you have to, but I'm just uh, wondering... Here, then, uh, Danny, if you could just uh, pass this. Oh, thanks. Uh, raise your hand in the back. Yeah. This was um, a not um, expected, uh-huh. but the energetic part, the energetic part, uh-huh. I kind of experienced as a manic. The calming part I experienced as a bit of depressive, or I felt my <coughs> energy going different ways in order mm-hmm. to kind of just experience where I was going with it when my mind got in the way. Mm-hmm. So as my mind took me off to kind of activity, mm-hmm. or when I was more still, it took me down into the deep dark. Uh-huh. So this is really useful to see. You know, there's obviously there's positive and and negative on on both ends of the energy spectrum, and you want to um, just the more conscious you are of it, the the more you can make that a brightening energy instead of a manic energy. And when you're not feeling as energetic you can actually, you might experiment with inclining the mind to, to not so much think, oh, I'm, I, this is, I'm kind of in a funk, but just, oh, this is a, this is a more restful time, this is a, a rejuvenating time, this is, or this is a time I'm just, just getting a little bit quieter inside. Sometimes how we hold what our energy is like will affect the story that, we're telling ourselves, oh, I'm kind of, I must be out there manicking. And you kind of talk yourself into, a, into that or the reverse. So it's useful to see. Okay, any, anything else that you have? Is that, did you want to say something? You, no? Okay. Uh, yes, uh, for no me points. it was uh, more of an observation mm-hmm. of the kind of energies that would go through me at various points during a meditation or even uh, a non-meditative experience. Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was interesting from the point of view that I could detach slightly and say, oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And although there was judgment there, I could even observe my judgment. It's like, oh, you're judging. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Mm, good. How you say you're judging makes all the difference in the world. You could say, oh, you're judging. <laughs> or, oh, you're judging. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And that observing, that's what we'll be talking about today. The, one of the powers of mindfulness, of, of the power of observing uh, which makes all the difference in the world. So thank you. And here you can turn, turn it off. And, um, so one reason why I asked is, again, to encourage you to take this series as we explore more than just a passive information download uh, but rather to actively practice. This is your, when your life is, is being looked at through a Dharma lens, then it doesn't matter what you're looking, what particular focus you're looking through, you're learning. And so uh, if, you're, if you're not using a particular focus these days in your life, other than, oh, I'm just trying to be as present as I can or conscious as I can. Take each one as a practice for the week and that will make it come alive and you'll experience for yourself what these different factors are. So the first factor in this list we've spoken about, we speak about quite regularly that is the quality of mindfulness. Sati in the Pali, S-A-T-I, sati, like the, the foundation, the uh, discourse on uh, the foundations of mindfulness is the Sati Patana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness, which all of Buddhist meditation is based on. And as I mentioned last week, it starts off, there is a most direct way, a most wonderful way for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, grief and despair, and pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness, and that is the establishment of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'll just, again, plug, if you want to read the most comprehensive, definitive book on the Satipatthana Sutta on this, um, on how the practice of mindfulness works. I recommend this book by um, Analayo, A-N-A-L-A-Y-O, called Satipatthana. Um, the word sati actually means remembering or recollecting. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's translated as mindfulness, but it actually means in the Pali, remembering. Remembering what? Remembering to be here. The book, the, you know the book Be Here Now? The actual name of that book was Remember, Be Here Now. Mm-mm. What you're actually remembering is you are technically looking at this moment in a way you're looking at the past at the past moment the moment that you're you're seeing is a moment of seeing what has what is happening there's going so fast that it seem it's simultaneous but it's actually a, a a thought about what you're experiencing and the wisdom factor that's knowing, oh, here's a breath or here's a sound is that naming of the experience in a very subtle way one micro moment after. Um, anyway, it's useful to uh, to understand that this is uh, the main part of the practice is just remembering to be here. Easier said than done, isn't it? Mm. And the, 
the, the qualities of practice, actually, of, of mindfulness. I think I'll, I'll just share with you a couple of passages. Um, where he talks about it being really a relaxed kind of attention. This is uh, the kind of mental state in which memory functions well can be characterized by a certain degree of breadth in contrast to a narrow focus. It is this breadth that enables the mind to make the necessary connections between information received in the present moment and information to be remembered from the past. This quality becomes evident on those occasions when one tries to recall a particular instance or fact, but where the but where the more one applies one's mind, the less one is able to remember it. You ever say, come on, I've got to try hard. What was, what was that again? And when you try hard and your mind contracts, it gets agitated. But when you just stop trying so hard, it's like, oh, there it was. It was just on the tip of my tongue. You know, the tip of the tongue experience. If the issue in question, she says, is laid aside for a while and the mind is in a state of relaxed receptivity, information one was trying to remember will suddenly spring to mind. And in the same way, mindfulness isn't beating your experience with observation. It's, there's a relaxedness to it, a receptivity, and yet a kind of connection, a kind of um, probing, a kind of interest. This is where the factor of investigation supports this. But it's like you're not so laid back, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. You're not going to be. It takes actually some intention to say, yes, I want to connect with this moment. One of my uh, teachers, a uh, Burmese master, uh, used to use the analogy of um, a fork in a piece of broccoli. Right? Very practical, one that everyone can relate to. If you dangle the fork just on the, the, the surface of the broccoli, you're going to go hungry. But if you smash the fork into the broccoli, I'm going to like this, it's going to fly everywhere. You'll break the plate, you'll, you'll hurt your hand. But if you sink in just enough so that there's contact, and yet it's not forced, you're just making a connection with it. That is a good analogy for mindfulness, where you're connecting with the object with interest with relaxation, that balance between receptivity and alertness and wakefulness. There is a calmness to mindfulness as well. And as we talked about last week, I mentioned briefly, the, un- one, the unique, one of the most unique aspects of mindfulness is that of all the mental factors it weakens all the unwholesome factors and strengthens all the wholesome factors. Because in the moment that you're mindful, you are not grasping at the pleasant, which means you are not, you are deconditioning the force of greed, and you're also in that non-grasping, that non-greed there's a kind of openness, a kind of allowing, and a, um, a kind of letting, letting things unfold as they are, as they do. You're not pushing away the unpleasant. So if it's an unpleasant, you know, say, ache in your shoulder, or emotion that you might be having, judging, seeing in your mind, if you're not pushing it away or frustrated that it's here, but just, again, allowing for it to be here. There's non-aversion. 
so that you're undercutting that habit in, of mind of aversion or anger or ill will, all the, the movements of mind that, that distance you from experience. That non-aversion is really uh, inherent in that you're cultivating a friendliness towards your experience. And there's also non-delusion. Now, non-delusion can mean, one, that you're not fuzzy about what's happening, you're clear about it. And two, the aspect non-delusion also means that you are not identifying with your experience. You're not taking it personally. My anger, my uh, pain in the neck, my whatever it is, my love, my all, even the good things. You, there is just this observing power that sees without taking ownership of the experience because all the experience that you'll go through is just coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. There's no one thing in there that you can say, that's me. There's this flow of experience that's happening there. So it's cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion in every moment that you're mindful and undercutting the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the big three that are leading to all the suffering that we experience. Mm, Let's see what else I want to say about it. So as I explain mindfulness, um, there's a few components that I like to keep in mind. One, it's seeing things just as they are, not prettying them, glorifying them, making them more intense, making them less intense. It's just calling it like it is, as I like to to say in the, the old Dragnet series, if you're old enough, and they did a remake in the last few years, uh, you know, Sergeant Friday would come to the door and there'd be the stereotypical hysterical woman, you know, this happened, that happened, and what did he say? Just the facts, ma'am, okay? The facts, just the facts, ma'am. That's mindfulness. Not trying to make it more intense, not trying to make it less intense, just okay, it's like this. This is what's happening. Seeing it for, seeing just what it is as clearly as possible. Two, being here in the present moment, which is radical. Not many of us spend a lot of our time in the present moment. And because of that, we can very easily, those moments put one after another strung together, we can miss out on our life which, you know, many people do. Most of us do most of the time. So mindfulness is saying, be here for your life, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. Three, mindfulness shows us, as you pay attention to the present moment, that it's constantly changing. That is a transforming, transformative understanding That's why mindfulness is so liberating, the key, because as you're paying attention to the present moment, you're seeing the continual flux of experience. That is what leads to the greatest kind of insight and freedom. And this mindfulness is a kind of non-judging awareness where you're not giving life a report card. This is good. It's passing my test. This is lousy. I would run the universe a lot better if I had my, my chance. And all of that exhausts us. So this is simply observing that flow of experience as it is. In the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, there's four foundations I, I mentioned briefly last time, and I'll just mention uh, again tonight. There's mindfulness. The first foundation is mindfulness of the body. You can pay attention to a sound, to a sight, to a smell, to a taste, to a touch. The breath, whatever you're paying attention to, this is the laboratory 
to check out your experience. And in that first foundation, the Buddha says, not ju- he starts out with the breath. He says, knowing I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing in a long breath, I know I'm breathing in a long breath. Knowing I, I'm breathing out a, sh- uh, a, a long breath, I know I'm breathing out a long breath. Same with the short breath. He says, okay, check out your breath. That could take you all the way to full enlightenment, actually. But then he says, he understands you're not going to be sitting there breathing 24-7. So he says, oh yeah, besides the breath, by the way, there's everything else. Whatever posture you're in, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, be mindful. That makes it a very portable experience. You can take this practice wherever you go. So that's the first foundation. Second foundation is mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, what's called Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And feeling tone simply means the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. Every single moment has one of those. Not that it's bad, not that it should be any different, just every moment has some flavor of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And with mindfulness, you're simply noticing, oh, this is a pleasant moment. This is an unpleasant moment. This is a neutral moment. If you can notice with mindfulness, that is also a key to liberation. He makes this second foundation its own unique area, sphere, because in, when you see it with mindfulness, oh, this is pleasant, then you are less likely to get into what often follows the pleasantness. I like this and I want more. Bring it on. That's where grasping comes. That's where, what leads to our suffering. When it's Simply an unpleasant moment. Oh, this is an unpleasant moment. Oh, this is a drag. You know. Oh, this is, this is really unpleasant. Okay. But if you stay with it on that level, you're simply noticing what's happening and saying, this is hard right now. This is unpleasant. Very different than, oh my God, I'm going to die if this goes on. I can't stand this. This is unfair. Why is this happening to me? And you can see, as I read those accounts from the people in Japan, the difference between the panic button and the one that says, this is happening now. How can we deal with this in the wisest possible way? How extraordinary. Mindfulness, I think, is very much in, in that culture. So... That changes from the suffering that's caused by aversion into simply noticing this is an unpleasant moment. Because knowing that it passes gives you the courage to be with things when they're hard. The more you understand how things change, the more you're willing to be here when they get rough without contracting, which just compounds the the problem. So that's Vedana. The third foundation is mindfulness of mental formations. That is, all the thoughts and feelings that go through the mind. And as that third foundation says, oh, the, there is a, the mind has anger now, or there's, there's no anger in this mind. Oh, now the mind has kindness or compassion. Now there's no compassion here now. Oh, and here's this thought. When you're saying, oh, thinking, that's what's happening. In the moment you say that, you're, that, oh, thinking is going on, you're not lost in the thought or the story and hooked by it. Here's a, a simple exercise. I don't think I did this last week. Just try this for a moment. Close your eyes and um, think of, oh, somebody who um, just touches some feelings for you can be a, either positive or negative, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Just 
bring someone to mind who stirs up some feelings. Have an image of them so you really can connect and see them epitomizing what it is they represent for you. Now become aware that you're sitting right now in a room with a number of other people and we're all making pictures in our mind. Just tune into that perspective. Here we are, sitting here, making pictures together in our minds. Do you notice the shift from being in the middle of the movie to realizing there's a movie that you're making, that your mind makes? Okay, you can open your eyes. That moment of seeing, oh, making a movie. You don't have to blame yourself for making a movie or take pride that you've got a really great you know, 3D action movie or whatever is going on. You just notice, oh, here's this mental formation. That gives you the possibility of not getting so hooked by the story. Then you can choose which thoughts or feelings to empower instead of getting lost in each one that comes down the pike. So that's the third foundation, being mindful of mental formations. And then the fourth foundation is a little bit more complex, as I I mentioned last week, where it's a, a list of different lists, including the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and the four noble truths. It's just kind of seeing how all of this puts together. It is put together. I, w- I won't say more than that right now. So, how does this work? There's another um, beautiful um, treatise that I've found very powerful. And you can get it online. Uh, I, I don't think I mentioned it here last, last week. It's called The Power of Mindfulness. You can just Google The Power of Mindfulness by Nyanapanika Tara. Nyanapanika Tara. N-Y-A-N-A-P-O-N-I-K-A. And Tara, T-H-E-R-A, like Theravadan. Tara means elder. Nyanapanika Tara was um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who I mentioned here, the translator, he was his mentor and the former premier translator for the Buddhist Publication Society. And he was this very brilliant, precise mind. I read this when I was first getting into, uh, into this practice over 30 years ago, and it just it blew my mind how concise and precise it was. Um, So I recommend it highly. But he talks about the fact that mindfulness, one thing he, I'll just read a a little bit of, I love it so much. Um, he, He talks about the different functions of mindfulness. One of them he calls the functions of tidying and naming, tidying up the mental household. I'll just read. He was a, a German uh, with, uh, who uh, was just very clear, and he spoke English you know, incredibly, and he, just, and he knew Pali you know, as, as good as anyone does. And I just love the way his mind works. If anyone whose mind is not harmonized and controlled through meth- methodical meditative training should take a close look at his own everyday thoughts and activities, he will meet a rather disconcerting sight. <laughs> Apart from the few main channels of his purposeful thoughts and activities, he will everywhere be faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, casual body movements, etc., showing a disorderliness and confusion which he would certainly not tolerate in his own living room. Yet this is the state of affairs that man takes for granted within a considerable portion of his waking life and his normal mental activity. Let us now look at the details of that rather untidy picture. And then he goes on. And he says, mindfulness just cleans up the mind. You know, you can be lost in so many different 
places, blind alleys and confusions and fears and all this stuff, and to simply come back and know that you're breathing or know that you're sitting on the earth, it's like, clears it all up. Just everything kind of gets sorted out into its place. This is why if somebody is really getting lost or confused, if you can just get them to feel their bodies for a moment, as we say, get grounded, it's a moment of mindfulness that says, here we are, everything else is just going around out there, and you don't have to try, to try hard to clean it up and sort it all. It's just, what's happening now? Oh, breathing. What's happening now? Oh, freaking out. That's what's happening. Okay. The moment that you see it, it's like, oh, that's what's going on. Boing. It's like you're shining the light on it. Another way that he talks about mindfulness working is uh, the power of naming. And I I love this, where he he says, like in the old mythology, uh, mythic tales, when the hero or the heroine didn't know the name of the demon or the monster, that it had tremendous power over her or him. But as soon as the name was figured out, what happened to the demon or the monster loses its power. It's the same way with mindfulness. As soon as you see, oh, this is what's happening. You ever have that, that understanding besides on the cushion in your life? Say you're kind of like, really grumpy and confused and sorting and, and, and just trying to, just really stuck. And then you see, oh, oh, this is, this is what's going on. Or, oh, sometimes it's a thought of, oh, this is why this happened to me and there's something that's kind of reverberating in. And as soon as you see, oh, that's what's going on. You know that moment? Isn't that a wonderful moment? It's like, oh, the sky opens up. Oh, that's what's going on. And that clarity of just naming it moves you out of the confusion of drowning in, in your you know, lost space. So this is the function of naming clearly. And that's what mindfulness does. As my friend Carol Wilson says all the time, awareness doesn't care. It doesn't care what you're paying attention to. It can be the most beautiful mental formation, or it could be a horror show. Awareness doesn't care, because the awareness that's noticing is not lost. The awareness of fear, for instance, is not afraid. The awareness of sadness is not sad. The awareness of confusion is not confused. The awareness is not touched by what is dancing in the middle of it all. So that awareness creates a space, creates a clarity, creates a connection that's quite liberating. Another way that mindfulness works that uh, Nyanaponika talks about is stopping and slowing down. And he, he quotes this, this line from the Tao Te Ching. He who keeps still or knows when to stop will not meet danger. And from the Buddha, he who abstains from interfering is everywhere secure. So what mindfulness does is it gives us, excuse me, a little space, a little pause from the momentum of our confusion. In the moment of mindfulness, you kind of slow down for a moment and you come back to your senses, as they sometimes say. 
And in fact, in neuroscience, I love this, uh, uh, this concept that uh, Paul Ekman talks about. Paul Ekman is the, um, the guy who reads faces and, uh, and it was in Blink, the book Blink. And um, there was that, what was the story, the, uh, the TV show uh, Lies or, what is it? Lie to me, or uh, something about that he could, you could tell when somebody is lying or not. And um, he's, so he's the student of neuroscience and, um, uh, and uh, uh, also Dharma. And he and the Dalai Lama uh, co-authored a book called Emotional Awareness. And he talks about this phenomenon called the refractory period. Did I mention this here last week? The refractory period is that period, I'm sure most everyone knows what, the, what I'll be talking about, <clears throat> when you are really lost, you know, something has triggered some, uh, an emotion in you, and you are just gone. That period where you are gone, and you are caught up, swept up by a particular emotion, Everything in your system confirms the reality that you're locked in. So if you are really frightened, then everything seems dangerous at that time. Or if you're really paranoid, I mean, that's the ultimate. People who are suffering from real paranoia, everybody is dangerous. That's the, you know the full-blown full refractory period that, that doesn't, that's not stopping. But for most of us, we all know that experience. You're really angry, pissed off at, at somebody, and all of a sudden, you know, anything they do is kind of proof that they're really rotten, right? That refractory period, we are not observing clearly, when we wake up from that refractory period, we again come to our senses. And what mindfulness has been shown to do is it shortens the refractory period for us. So somebody who's practicing, who's done a lot of practice, they might lose it unless you're completely fully cooked and fully enlightened, you're going to lose it from time to time. But what happens is you don't lose it for quite as long. That's all the difference in the world. You know, as I've said many times, I can lose it. I can really lose it. You know, I don't lose it all that much. Don't worry about it. I won't, you know. But I definitely have my moments. But they're more moments rather than getting swept away for you know, weeks, like I might have a few decades ago, right? or days. There's a part, and I probably most everybody can relate to this, there's a part in you that's, that just kind of, maybe you've, if, you're, if you've done some practice, you might take a few deeper breaths, or, uh, or you, when you maybe when the next time you sit, and you just take a few moments to, to cool out. Like, oh, wow. You ever watch yourself losing it? And when you watch yourself losing it, you're not losing it. That's mindfulness. It intersperses those moments and weakens, weakens that, whole, that whole reaction. So that refractory period gets shorter and shorter over time with practice. And it's been, this has been shown in neuroscience labs, too. Also, he, he mentions about mindfulness having the capacity, having, I should say, the effect of more spontaneity. Sometimes people think, oh, if I'm mindful, I've, I'm kind of lifting my foot and moving it, placing it, you know, going slowly and, you know, what about being alive? Actually, 
when you practice mindfulness formally, you become much more spontaneous. At least that's the direction. I mean, you, this can go any way if you kind of value being very measured, you know, then that's, that might be the path that you go on. But the idea is to be so in the, mo- that in the moment that you're not prefabricating and you're not thinking about what's next or what happened. You ever have a conversation where you're kind of, you're in, kind of engaged, but you're waiting for the other person to finish so you can say your brilliant you know, pearl of wisdom? And so you're just a little bit not here. And, and actually, when you're speaking to somebody who's in that mode, you can kind of tell that they're a little bit not here. Isn't that so? Maybe. It's very different when you're with somebody who's just here and present, not waiting for their moment to get in. There's a connection that is so extraordinary and engaging and uplifting. And it makes you want to be here for them, too. Isn't that so? So actually, mindfulness in its best flowering leads to a spontaneity, a spontaneity where you're fully alive in the present moment. Not that you don't plan the future consciously or remember the past with, with nostalgia or with understanding of what happens, but if you're mostly living in the past or the future or fantasizing and just here a little bit of the time, that's when you miss out on your life. So there's this kind of aliveness that can come from mindfulness. And what is the result of this? Why is mindfulness so liberating? Because mindfulness directly reveals what are called the three characteristics of existence. One, everything changes. Okay, spoke about that a moment ago. Yeah, is this new? If you tell somebody, hey, or ask somebody, hey, do things change? Most people will say, yeah, things change. But when you are seeing in a very direct, very immediate way the truth that everything changes, there you're sitting and there's a sound, and there's the breath, and there's a sensation, and there's a thought, and there's or one breath, instead of being, is kind of many, 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 many moments of change when you're in that focused kind of concentration, concentrated mindfulness, you start seeing the continual arising and passing of experience the solidity of everything starts to be seen through. That also leads to an understanding of the second characteristic of experience, which is in a world of change, holding on to suffering, sorry, holding on to anything is just suffering. It's all, you know, like Joseph has this, has the great, uh, uh, great metaphor, holding on to that which is changing is sure to give you rope burn. You know, like you're holding on to a rope that's kind of sliding through. It hurts. So you see the, the, the unsatisfactoriness, the suffering that comes from holding on in a world of change. And then finally, the, the third characteristic, as you see for yourself how everything in this mind and body process is changing, you see that you are a process rather than a fixed entity to whom life is happening. Life isn't happening to you. Life is happening through you or as you. And that, again, is the liberating understanding where we're not taking this mind-body process for self. So, 
we just have a few minutes, a few moments left. So just in this, I'd like you to um, practically just see how you can work with this in your life. Okay, so this week, one, I hope you're taking some time to meditate. And when you do, (laughs) to be mindful. And to notice in that mindfulness or in your meditation, just put a little bit of a focus on the changing nature of your experience. If you don't do anything else, your mind might be all over the map and you might have wandered 15 times if you're lucky, you know, or maybe one long time. You know, that sometimes happens. But notice you're sitting there at the beginning, you're sitting there at the end, and uh, as Dr. Seuss says, oh, the places you go. All the different places that you go, all the different thoughts that you have, all the different sensations, the breath, maybe you remember from time to time, just noticing, oh, wow, things are really changing, aren't they? And in your daily life, just get a sense. Mm, The way I like to do, to practice is, I think I've said it here before, making it like a game. So just uh, close your eyes for a moment and think of, what activity you might take just as a game as mindfulness practice. I've been using shaving for many, many years. Oh, that's, that's one time that I wake up or try to wake up. And I usually am there somewhere during the shave. Maybe it's uh, washing the dishes like Thich Nhat Hanh says or whatever. Think of one activity that you might do just as a mindfulness practice, not to get finished with it, but to really be with it. And imagine yourself in that mode. What it would be like to not be toppling forward to the next thing and just be in there with that one. And then there are other times when you might find yourself waiting that are great periods of practice, like when your computer boots up. You're not going to hurry it along by cajoling it. Come on, let's go. Just take it as a few moments of mindfulness. Or when you're waiting in a line. Oh, great time to really connect with myself. Take a few mindful breaths. Know that you're alive. What that would be like. And make it a game to see just how mindful you can be. Maybe it'll be going for your walk. Oh, let's do it as a mindfulness practice. Okay. And uh, since you have your eyes closed and it's just about time to go, We'll just go right into a loving kindness from here in the evening. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to have any uh, conversation. But uh, just stay connected to your heart right now. Caring heart that feels for others across the world. And wish yourself well. May I be present for my life. May I see through confusion and share my love well. May I wake up to my true nature. And then to extend that to everyone here, all beings everywhere, particularly everyone in Japan right now.
May you find peace through fear, through whatever fears come. May you stay connected to your goodness and love. May you deepen your compassion. presence. May you wake up to your true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit for ourselves, everyone in our lives, and all beings everywhere. have a good week and let's uh, keep Japan in our hearts and uh, see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.